Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Walnut Creek Church. My name is Cole Myers. I serve as one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek Church in Windsor Heights. And, uh, so if you're new with us, I just want to extend a very special welcome to you. We're really glad that you've joined us this morning for worship. Um, just by a show of hands, has anyone ever missed a flight before? Oh, yeah, okay. Or, or maybe like a bus or a really important meeting, something that's just a really bad thing to miss. Last year, my family and I were traveling to Arizona to visit some family. We had a layover in Denver, and our flight from Des Moines to Denver was delayed uh, just long enough to cause some serious anxiety. We had about, when we landed in Denver, we had about three minutes to get from our gate uh, where we landed to a gate where we were going to take off to go to Arizona. And if you know the Denver airport, it's like one big long strip of gates. And we were on one end of the airport, and our flight that we had to catch was on the other end, about a mile away is what it seemed like. Uh, we didn't check any bags, so I, I had all of our suitcases. We had four kids. We got all of our things when the plane landed, and we just started going. Dana was carrying the baby, and she was pulling a suitcase, and I had the child's hand. And it, we were just quite the scene, sprinting as hard as we could through the Denver airport. And we would pass people, and they would cheer for us. They're like, yeah, go get it. You can do it, Dad. I was wearing a jacket. By the time we got to the, the gate, I was sweating. I was breathing hard. I was a mess. We made it. We got on the flight, which was great. But let's just say we didn't. Can you imagine arriving just as they're closing the doors? All of that work, all of that sweat and discomfort and me telling my kids, no, you don't get a snack. No, you don't get a drink of water. No, you can't pee. You hold that pee. All of that would have just been for nothing. It would have been worthless and totally pointless. We would have felt angry, disheartened, maybe cheated. Because we, we felt like we were doing what we needed to do to get where we needed to go. And maybe this isn't a perfect parallel to our passage, but I think it's pretty close. See, I, I would imagine... That this passage that we're going to study this morning would have maybe a similar effect on the mind of a Jew who is hearing this passage for the very first time. They weren't banking on catching a flight. You know what they were banking on? They were banking on righteousness. The, the means that they were trusting in to obtain righteousness before God we're going to see it wasn't just insufficient. It wasn't just not good enough. It was worthless. And so this morning we are in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Romans chapter 2 with me this morning. And we are going to look at our passage here. Paul is right in the middle of making the argument that all of humanity is condemned before God. Okay, the whole book of Romans, where he's going, is he's trying to unite the church under the gospel of grace in Christ. But first to do that, we need to understand that we are all united in our condemnation. And so that's where we're at in the book of Romans. And here's what he writes, starting in verse 25 of chapter 2. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? 
A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible to the, in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So this is our passage this morning. Before we dive in, what I want to do is invite you all to spend a couple minutes praying together. You ever stop and just think, why are we even here? Why are we here as a church? Why did you come to church this morning? The reason probably varies from person to person. For some of you, it's just what you do, right? It's on the calendar. Week after week after week, we just show up to church. It's what we do. It's part of the routine. For others, we we look forward to seeing good friends. It's an opportunity to connect, to have a great conversation with someone. For some of you, you consider this your main opportunity to grow spiritually throughout the week. And all of those are great reasons to come. But there is a purpose that far exceeds these. See, the reality is each Sunday, God gathers us together. God is the one who is gathering the church together. We might drive ourselves here, but it is God working in this church to gather us around the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gathers us so that we might receive from him. He gathers us so that we might worship him in return. He gathers us to make himself known to us and through us in the gathering. And so what I want you to do is as you spend time praying together, yes, pray that God gives you a teachable heart this morning. Pray that his word goes forth, that his word shapes us and molds us more into his image. But pray also that as a church that we would be keenly aware and in tune with why God has gathered us here this morning. Okay? So I would invite you now, if, you don't, if you're sitting with someone that you don't really know them, just introduce yourself, introduce yourself, share your name, and then spend a couple minutes praying for our time together. And then I'll step back up here. I'll pray for us all together, and then we'll dive into our passage. Okay? Go ahead and pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together this morning, for gathering us together as a church. We thank you that we can come together to receive from you, to hear from you. God, help us to do that this morning. Help us, Lord, to rightly exalt you, to worship you from our heart. God, help us to speak truth in love to one another, that we might be edified by one another, hearing one another sing, hearing one another pray, knowing that together we are communing with you. Pray, God, that your gospel would go forth to the world through us. God, that your word would, would make yourself known and you would make yourself known not only to us this morning, but through us as a church. We thank you that this is your work. Pray, God, that you give us insight into your word this morning, that you would use your word to transform each of us more and more into your likeness. We need your grace for this, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. One of the best ways to study a passage of Scripture is to simply make observations. Right? So you, you read a text, and you ask yourself this question. What do I see? What's right there in the text? Don't worry about what it's telling you to do. Don't worry about how to interpret it or what it means first. Just ask yourself, what is right there in the text? And as you make observations, there's a number of different categories that can help you know exactly what to look for when you're reading a passage. You can look for cause-effect relationships, for example, or you could look for stark contrasts or helpful comparisons. You can look for lists or metaphors and similes, or you can pay attention to the tone of the author. In fact, if you have a Roman study guide, okay, if you don't have a Roman study guide, we have those available for you outside by the Welcome Center. And if you do have one, what you'll notice is at the very beginning of this study guide, starting on page four, we have some Bible study tips in there, Okay. If you haven't taken a look at that before, I would encourage you to maybe spend some time this week and look through some of those Bible study tips. Part one of those tips is just an overview of a Bible study method called the interpretive journey that was put together. Uh, from, it's from a book called Grasping God's Word by Danny Hayes. All right. That's the, the overview. And then you turn to page two and what you see are things to look for. In other words, observations. When you make an observation, what are some things to look for? And they give, he gives a bunch of different categories for making those observations. And what you'll notice in that list is the very first and most basic thing that we can observe when we are looking at any biblical text is repetition. Repeated words. Chances are... If the biblical author repeats a word more than a couple times, that word matters. And so if you jump back into our text this morning, does anyone notice a repeated word in our text this morning? <laughs> Paul is diving real deep, real fast into circumcision. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to at least provide some context for us that we might understand circumcision as it relates to the purpose that it serves in the Abrahamic covenant, okay? And then we're going to take a look at how Paul uses the mark of circumcision to completely dismantle the Jewish identity. And then from there, we'll look at what Paul has to say about 
true circumcision. And so our outline this morning, if you're taking notes, you want to be able to follow through with an outline, here are the points of the outline this morning. We'll look at the sign of circumcision, looking at some context. Then we'll look at the snare of circumcision, and we'll see how Paul then dismantles the Jewish identity as circumcision becomes the snare. And then we'll look at the source of true circumcision. Okay? So the sign of circumcision, we are introduced to the practice of circumcision in Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is helpful in that it spells out the different aspects of God's covenant with Abraham. And this covenant, it involves two key pieces. Number one, it involves the, pri- the promised offspring. And number two, it involves the promised land. But Genesis 17 is not where God is first making this covenant with Abraham. Okay, that happened two chapters earlier in Genesis 15. And there's two incredibly important things that happen in Genesis 15 if we understand, if we're going to understand how the role of circumcision plays out in all of it. Okay, the first thing that happens in Genesis 15 is that God promises that Abraham's offspring will be more numerous than the stars of the sky. God brings Abraham out. He says, Abraham, look at the stars of the sky. Your offspring will be more numerous than this. In verse 6 of Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is very important. What, What is the source of Abraham's righteousness here? It is his faith. See, God counts Abraham righteous based on his belief in God's promise. This is a really big deal. We're going to see why. The second thing that happens in Genesis 15 is that God seals his promise by making an actual covenant with Abraham. What he did is he instructed Abraham to go out and gather some animals and slice them in two and then arrange the halves of the animals in a manner that one could pass between them. And so Abraham obeyed. And when the sun went down that evening, God appeared in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and he passed between the animals okay rc sproul he's a rather well-known theologian of the last century he, he said that his life verse is genesis 15 17 okay his life verse this is what genesis 15 17 says when the sun had set and it was dark a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals that's how he would sign books when people asked for an autograph genesis 15 17 this is weird But Sprawl clung to this verse because it was God's way of communicating that the fulfillment of his promise rested on him. If God did not fulfill his promise, then may he become like these animals that he was passing between. And we know with God that is impossible. See, God would be faithful, faithful. He would be the one to come through on his promise. He would be the one to make a nation for himself from Abraham's seed. He would be the one to provide the land for them. All of this would happen because God is faithful, not because Abraham and his offspring were perfect. So in Genesis 17, then, what God does first is he reminds Abraham of this covenant that he made with him. And then verse 9, he introduces circumcision. So Genesis 17 is where we're first introduced to the topic of circumcision. Starting in verse 9, it says, God also said to Abraham, As for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations... 
So I'm sorry, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be, will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. Okay, so just we're all on the same page here. What circumcision is, it is the permanent surgical removal of skin from the male reproductive organ. That's circumcision. There's no mystery behind it. So what role does it play here in verse 11? It says, if you're to undergo circumcision... It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Genesis 17, verse 11, what role is it playing? It is the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring. It is not the substance of the covenant. It is not the source of the covenant. It is the sign of the covenant. And signs are important. They serve a purpose, right? They communicate something about a thing, but a sign is not the thing itself. Many people will use the analogy of a wedding ring to help us understand the role of circumcision. I think it's a good analogy, right? My, my wedding ring, it sends the message that I'm married, but just because I'm wearing a ring, it, that doesn't make me married, right? And why a ring? Why not something else? Why not a button on my clothes? Or why not a tattoo on my face that says I'm married? Like, why a ring? Well, it's because the nature of a ring is that it is unbroken and unending, just as a marriage ought to be, right? There's, there's something significant about the symbol of a ring. So why circumcision, right? I mean, couldn't have God have chosen anything to mark his people as his people like why why this right i would say it's hard to draw some rock solid inferences from any particular bible passage but scholars they they have generally pointed to two major reasons why god would have chosen circumcision as the sign of the covenant first circumcision it is a cutting off of sorts isn't it it symbolizes a set-apart nature of the Israelites. God's covenant was to them and them alone. They were to be separate and distinct, cut off from the other nations, and set apart for God and his possession as his people. So that's one reason why it seems like an appropriate sign. Second, the covenant was for Adam and his seed. It was to carry from generation to generation. So it would make sense then that the sign of the covenant involved the male organ from which the seed would come. Okay, there's significance there to the sign. It's, it, there, there seems to be some appropriateness as to why there would be circumcision. But it is nothing more than a sign. The sign did not and could not produce righteousness. What was it that made Abraham righteous? It was not his circumcision, right? His circumcision came 
after he was counted righteous, and he was counted righteous based on his faith. Circumcision conveyed the message. It conveyed the message that one belonged to the covenant community of God's people, that they were offspring of Abraham and within the folds of God's chosen people. But circumcision did not make someone a member of God's people. Only God did that, and it was through their faith. Right? Circumcision, it was just the sign that pointed to it. Uh, theologian Herman Bovink, I think, helpfully puts circumcision in the right light for us. This is what he writes in his uh, book, Wonderful Works of God. He says, first, it is God who seeks Abraham out and calls him and leads him to Canaan. Second, it is he who promises that he will be a God to him and to his seed. Third, God promises that Abraham, or he promises Abraham that all expectations to the contrary, he will have a posterity, will become a father of a great nation, and that this nation will have Canaan as its inheritance. Fourth, God says that in his posterity, Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And fifth, fifth, God draws upon this promise and the pledge of a covenant seals it with the sign of circumcision and after Abraham's trial of faith confirms it with an oath. It comes well after God calling Abraham and making a promise to him. This is the context that we need to understand our passage. Okay, This is where it comes from. Understanding the background behind circumcision allows us then to move into our second point, the snare of circumcision. So remember what Paul's argument is in Romans 1 and 2. He is working hard to unite all of humanity, including the Jew, under condemnation, under the condemnation of God. So why is Paul then bringing in the sign of the covenant here in his effort to help the Jews see that they stand condemned? What is it? Like, why, why all of a sudden this shift to a focus on circumcision? Here's why. It's because the Jews had elevated the sign of the covenant above the source and substance of the covenant. They viewed their circumcision. In other words, they viewed the sign of their acceptance to God as the source of their acceptance to God. Circumcision wasn't the source. The substance of the covenant was God's promise. The source of God's covenant was his own faithfulness. And so in elevating the sign above God's promise and faithfulness, circumcision then had become a snare to them. Paul says the sign would have meaning if they had kept their end of the covenant, right? To walk in faith and obedience to God's law, but they didn't do that. See, my, my wedding ring, it has meaning because I'm faithful to my wife. A wedding ring on the finger of an adulterer means nothing. The sign is irrelevant without the substance. The Jews had fallen into believing that the surgery of the flesh was sufficient to save them. But instead, the surgery of the flesh be, became a snare to them. They thought they did what they needed to do to get where they needed to go, but instead their circumcision moved them away from faith and away from God. 
And so what Paul does in these next few verses is he he dismantles the Jewish identity built around circumcision in an effort to expose this snare in hopes that the Jews might see it and then be free. So verse 25, this is what Paul writes. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Here's what I think Paul is communicating here. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, which you don't. And if you are a lawbreaker, which you are, circumcision has become uncircumcision. So Paul's already made the point that Jews have failed to uphold the Mosaic law. Up to this point, I would argue that this has probably been the most provocative statement Paul has written. He is attacking the one thing the Jews could point to, the thing that has set them apart from the Gentiles and marked them as God's people, and Paul's attacking it. He's saying it has become uncircumcision. And then he doesn't stop there. His provocation gets stronger. In verse 26, he says, So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirement, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So not only is the sign of circumcision irrelevant and ineffective for the Jew who does not keep God's command, but if an uncircumcised Gentile were to keep the law, that would count as circumcision. In other words, they would be identified as a member of God's covenant community even without the mark of circumcision. He's making them equal. I think Paul could be speaking in hypothetical terms, right? He, he could, he's in the midst of a larger argument that no one is able to keep the law. No one is declared righteous by the works of the law. So he could just be making a hypothetical reference. In other words, we could read this as say, as Paul saying, okay, let's just imagine. Let's just imagine that there was a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile that could obey the law of righteousness. Let's just say, well, that person then would be counted as righteous. But I think it's also possible that Paul's referencing Gentile believers, those who have trusted Christ, who do not on their own obey the law perfectly, but rather are walking in obedience to the commands of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't specify exactly who he's referencing here, but I don't think it makes much of a difference because the point is this. Not only is the circumcision of a Jew considered invalid if it is not accompanied by obedience to the law, an uncircumcised Gentile who does obey the law is equal with that of a circumcised Jew. This would have blown their socks off. This was crazy. And then Paul takes it a step further. He says, a man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. Paul points to the two things that set the nation of Israel apart from the rest of the nations. They have the written law, and they have the the Mosaic law that was handed down from God himself through Moses, and they have this sign of of the covenant, this sign of circumcision. Yet they break God's law. They don't walk in humble obedience before the Lord. They don't walk as a member of his covenant community, and they are therefore subject to judgment by those who do even if they don't have the sign. 
So Paul, at the beginning of Romans 2, remember the, the beginning of Romans 2, Paul accuses the, judge, or accuses the Jews of judging the Gentiles. But at the end of Romans 2 here, he's saying it's actually the other way around. The, the Gentiles who follow God's law, they will stand in judgment over you. Right? He's dismantling the Jewish identity. Paul is taking an eraser to everything the Jews understood about their identity as God's people. He erases it. And then he paints a completely new picture in verses 28 and 29. Okay, and this new picture that he paints, it's the third point on our outline this morning. It is the source of true circumcision. Here's what he says in verse 28. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. And so when Paul says true circumcision, he is describing what truly marks someone as belonging to the covenant community of God's people. Not the ethnic nation of Israel, but the church. Not not just the ethnic identity of the Jew, but the new people that God is creating for himself. It's not true circumcision that Paul is writing about as much as it is true conversion. Right? And there's two incredibly important realities that Paul lays out for us here about the nature of true circumcision or true conversion. And the first is this. It is of the heart, not the flesh. This isn't the first time the Bible has made mention of circumcision of the heart. See, all the way back in Deuteronomy 10, Moses tells God's people to circumcise their hearts. Again, in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, Moses is prophesying about the Israelites returning to the Lord. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. The prophet Jeremiah implores Israel, saying, circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. That's Jeremiah 4.4. And then later in chapter 9, Jeremiah prophesies, he says this, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will punish all the circumcised yet uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, and all the inhabitants of the desert who clip their hair on their temples. All these nations are uncircumcised. And then he says this, And the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. And what Paul is saying in Romans 2 here, it's the very same thing that Moses and Jeremiah were proclaiming. He's saying, do you want to be marked as a child of God? Do you want to be a part of the covenant community of God's people, his chosen people? What you don't need is surgery of the flesh. You need surgery of the heart. And this word heart In both the Old and New Testament, it's not referring to the organ that pumps blood in your body. It refers to the very center of being, the core of who you are. Your heart is the throne of all thought and reason and intellect and emotion and affection. And so what 
is it then about our hearts that need help? Why would we need a circumcision of the heart? What is so wrong with our hearts? Everything. Everything. See, what we need to understand about our hearts is that on their own, they are sick. The core of who we are, the throne of our thought and reason and intellect and emotion and affection, the human heart on its own is unrelentingly drawn to the wrong things. The affections of our natural hearts, they are set on the things of the world and they are set on ourselves. They are set on our own agendas, our own reputations, our own ambitions. In fact, our hearts are so sick, a simple surgery won't do. The circumcision of the heart that the Bible speaks of, it's not just this little fix. It's not just adding something. It's not just an adjustment of the heart, but it is a complete transformation. It is a heart replacement. We read this in Ezekiel where God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Here's the thing about this type of heart surgery. No one can see it. It's invisible. It's hidden. The the visible circumcision of the flesh is not true circumcision. It's simply the visible sign of the intended invisible reality, the invisible circumcision of the heart. And this is what leads us to the second reality we need to understand about the nature of true circumcision or true conversion. Not only is it of the heart and not the flesh, but it is by the Spirit and not the letter. By the Spirit and not the law. So last week, my community group was over at our house for beggars night. We had a little potluck and we had over 20 kids in our house all getting costumes on at the same time. It was a lot of fun. And I walked around to all the kids and I, I asked this question. I said, hey, what are you? Sometimes it was obvious, sometimes not so much. But they would respond and they said, well, I'm, I'm a wolf or I'm a pink ninja or I'm the Mandalorian or... I'm a cowgirl. I'm a K-pop star. We had all these different things, different identities in our house. The kids had decided what they wanted to be. They put on the costume and they said, this is what I am. That is not how the Christian faith works. Do you know that if you're a Christian, it's not because you just decided one day that you wanted to be a Christian? It's, it's not because you, you decided you wanted to look and act the part of a Christian. When, when Paul says in verse 29 that a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart, what he's not saying is that a person is a Jew if they feel like it or if they really, really mean it. Likewise, a person is not a Christian just because they feel like being a Christian. It's not something you self-identify as. It's not something you just decide to be like a Halloween costume. A person becomes a Christian when God saves that person and gives that person a new heart. God is the one that saves a person. A person cannot save him or herself. 
And this is what Paul means when he says it's by the Spirit, not the letter. Conversion is a work of God's Spirit, not your own work and not your own effort. I mean, think about it. Because true conversion is of the heart and not the flesh, it must be by the Spirit. Because no one can perform surgery on your own heart, right? That's something that's got to be done to you. No one, no one could give themselves their own heart transplant. How much more impossible is it to perform a spiritual heart transplant? This is only the work of God. The written law and obedience to the written law, it does not have the power to save. Human effort alone to obey the letter of the law does not have the power to save God. God has the power to save when Paul writes, that person's praise is not from people, but from God. Right? That's how he ends this passage. We can understand that to mean that a person's acceptability to God, or their laudation or commendation, that is not from people, it is from God. In other words, a person's true Jewishness, spiritual Jewishness, not ethnic Jewishness, a person's true circumcision, true conversion is not from people. It's not done by the work of the law. It is the work of the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. Go to Ephesians 2 with me, if you will. Okay, I've got some passages here. It's not going to be on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to just open up to Ephesians 2. We're going to work through just a couple key points here that Paul has in Ephesians 2 for us. In Ephesians 2... Paul is addressing the Gentile believer, not the Jew at this point, okay? But as he does address the Gentile believer, he demolishes the idea that circumcision, or any work for that matter, can save a person. Okay, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Okay, every single person, ethnically Jew or ethnically something else, has been at one point dead in their sins, cut off, dead in their trespasses. What is it that makes them alive? What moves someone from death to life? Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Who is it that made us alive? Was it you? Did you make you alive? No. God made us alive. Why? Because of something that you did. Because of the way that you look. A marking on your flesh. No. No, because of his great love that he had for us. That's what made us alive. Verse 8 for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. Underline that. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Your conversion, 
your true circumcision, the transferring from death to life is not something that you initiated. You didn't do it. God did it. It is not from yourselves. This is so important to understand. True conversion, true circumcision, it is of the Spirit. It is a work of God. Ephesians 2.8, you are saved by grace. By grace. What is it that saves us? It is God's grace. God's grace is his forgiveness towards us. His atoning work of Christ on the cross is the grace of God. Grace saves us, not feelings of sincerity or feelings of belief, not a decision that you just want to be saved. No desire alone has the power to save. God has the power to save. There is nothing that can save a person outside of the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. There is nothing needed in addition to the grace of of God that is in Christ Jesus to save a person. It is Christ alone. We cannot add anything to the work of God to further solidify our salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. You know, the church of Galatia was struggling to walk in this gospel. False teachers came in. They were trying to convince Gentile Christians that in order to be saved, they needed to be circumcised in the flesh. If you flip to Galatians 5, just a couple pages back probably in your Bibles. Paul writes this in verse 2. Take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You jump down to verse 12. Paul says, here's the deal, Jews. You want to cut off a little bit of the flesh, just cut it all off. Like, what's the point? It's worthless. That's what he says. They they might also let themselves be mutilated. He could not be more strong in making his case to the church in Galatia. Circumcision does not save you. Good works do not save you. Sincerity does not save you. Genuine desire does not save you. Self-identifying as a Christian does not save you. Nothing apart from the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus can save you. And so if I asked you, what makes you a Christian? How would you answer that? What is it that makes you a Christian? Have you been baptized? See, baptism, remember, it's the, it's the circumcision of the new covenant in a way. Right? It, it is the external visible mark of an internal visible reality. Like circumcision, there is significance in the symbol of baptism. 
When someone is baptized, they go down into the water, symbolizing the death of their old life and sin. They emerge from the water, symbolizing their new life in Christ. Is that what saves you? No. It is the sign of the new covenant that God has made with his people that points to the source and substance of the covenant, which is Christ. Does your baptism make you more saved than you were before? No. There are no degrees of being saved. The same is true with church membership. Being a member of a church does not make you a Christian. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Taking communion does not make you a Christian. Neither neither does reading your Bible or going to a prayer meeting or being part of a community group or tithing or meeting with a pastor or saying a prayer before a meal or having a cross hang around your neck. None of that makes you a Christian. They are external, visible indicators of someone's conversion, but they are not the source and substance. And if you have considered yourself a Christian and you have thought that you are saved because of some external, visible thing that you do, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. Nothing outside of yourself will save you. You cannot make yourself a Christian by the things that you do. It is a work of the Spirit. God God himself must give you a new heart, enabling you then to receive his grace by faith. You know, Paul says something else very profound in Galatians. He says, if righteousness could be gained through the law. So say, for example, if circumcision was a means by which someone could obtain righteousness, Or, for example, if baptism was the means by which someone could be saved, or church attendance, or whatever it is, if doing even one thing was provided a possibility for the people of God to be forgiven and made right with God by doing something, if there's just one thing that you and I could do to be made right with God, Christ died for nothing. That is the point that Paul makes in Galatians. If there was any way for us to be brought back into God's covenant community, God would have spared his son. God did not spare his son. God sent his son. He sent his son to save us because we could not save ourselves. God's promise is that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And today, if you have not trusted Christ for your salvation. If you've been trusting in your own goodness, then your application this morning, it is to turn to Christ. Receive Christ. Reject any and all works that you have been trusting in for your own salvation. Humble yourself before God. Receive his gift of eternal life that is found in Christ and Christ alone. If you've been following the Lord for years, this is not new to you, but oh, how easy it can be to hear the good news of the gospel and just think, yeah, I've got that. Saved by grace through faith, not my works. Let's move on. Don't move on. Do not move on. Just stop. 
and consider how God has saved you. It was his work. He did it. He saved you. And stop and consider not just how God has saved you, but what he has saved you from. God didn't just save you from a lack of purpose or a life of regret or loneliness. No, God has saved you from an eternal torment under his wrath because of your sin. That's what God has saved you from. Don't just consider how God has saved you and what he has saved you from, but consider what he has saved you for. He has saved you. He has given you a new heart so that you might glorify him by enjoying him and knowing with him, knowing him and walking with him. And it's not just for this life only. It is for all of eternity. It is incredible news. God has saved us for himself. Don't just consider how God has saved you, what he has saved you from what he has saved you for, but consider the permanency of your salvation. Because your salvation, it is based on the promise of God and not your own works. Therefore, you cannot lose it. God is faithful. See, true circumcision, true conversion, it will never be undone. Paul says this work of salvation, true circumcision, true conversion, it's a work of the Spirit. It is not your own work. It is a work of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have saved us. Thank you, God, that it is not our own work. There is nothing that we could possibly do to earn our forgiveness that we have. And that is a good thing because if there was something that we could do, undoubtedly we would fail to do it. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us in Christ, in Christ alone. Jesus, we thank you that you took our sin upon yourself. You hung on the cross on our behalf, the place that we deserve to hang. You rescued us, God. You bore the wrath of the Father so that we might have new life in you. I pray, God, that the gospel would mold us, it would shape us, it would not be something old, something stale in our lives, something that we just recall every once in a while, but it would move us. Every ounce of our being would be shaped and molded by the gospel of Christ. I pray for people who are here this morning that maybe have been trusting in their works for their salvation, that they would reject those, that they would look to you and you alone for their forgiveness, for their salvation. We thank you that it's possible in you, that this has been your work and not our own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.